vegan and veganism has become a really dirty word for a lot of farmers in light of the recent vegan protests in Melbourne. There were then animal rights activists that did some questionable things that I wouldn't agree with. They have taken things to a level of extremism and extremism in any following and movement is... Always loses people. Absolutely. Every time. I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. I'm also here with two very special guests, both very close to my heart in different ways. I'm here with Sophie. How are you, Sophie? I'm very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. And I'm also here with my partner, Jade. How are you, Jade? Hey, I'm good, thanks. That's good. (laughs) Right. Today's a special episode because you are both self-classify as vegans. So we're going to talk about that today. It's an interesting moral argument. I, of course, come from uh, maybe more like a whole food plant-based diet. Still have a leather wallet, you know, so Jade would argue, and I think I would agree, that does not classify me as vegan (laughs) because it is more of a lifestyle choice than it is a diet. See, these are these whole interesting questions. Is it just about the food or is it about everything? Mm. So we've already got one interesting question for later. Mm. Yeah. So, I've got leather everything, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, we've got a we've got a good mix at the table. I think that's the that's the important thing, uh, especially in your case, David. You're not being a meat eater just to be annoying. No, I should give myself a classification <laughs> and for classifying. Mm. I'm an inquisitive omnivore, <laughs> but I'm also happy to kill my own food, which I think puts me at a better level of being an omnivore than most omnivores who don't take responsibility for that or don't know where it comes from. Yeah, no, it comes on trays at the butcher. Yeah. So, I'm going to start the episode by asking Jade about your kind of transition to veganism. Um, So, it all happened pretty quick. I went from being an omnivore Mm -hmm. to receiving a pamphlet uh, out the front of our uni from the Vegan Society. And it just had information about mainly the egg industry, the dairy industry and uh, fisheries. And it was really informative and it just made sense it I made the connection at that point I think prior I felt guilt uh when eating meat I didn't really know much about dairy and eggs but I went home that night and mum cooked a fish dinner and I couldn't eat it so I went vegetarian from there and I was like oh I'll transition to vegan slowly and within two months I just couldn't stomach anything not vegan it's interesting it couldn't stomach as in like psychologically Yes, mm. yeah. And that it started to have physical symptoms of just nausea if you tried to eat it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 100%. there's the power of the brain. If you believe in it strongly enough, your body will begin to reflect it. Mm. Yeah. Which is really amazing. Now, I know that there's an interesting story about how your parents were affected by your journey. Yes. So when I came home that night and I said I couldn't eat my mom's tuna pie, um, <laughs> my parents were a bit confused let me just put it out there that neither of them were big meat eaters. We rarely ate red meat, but it had never come up, vegetarianism or veganism. And my mum was very accepting. I think we're both very empathetic people. So she understood quite quickly that I didn't want to eat meat. My dad didn't understand how I could change my mind so quickly. Or he felt very, very uncomfortable and you were making him realise how uncomfortable he felt. Yes. That he really 
wanted to think about it but didn't want to think about it but wanted to think about it but didn't want to think about it (laughs) yeah take it out on you yeah yeah Yeah. exactly because i yeah i was just trying to explain my reasoning behind it and then i think that made him a bit more upset because he agreed with my reasoning but yeah yeah uh, it was definitely a lot of cognitive dissonance Without the cool cognitive dissonance song, which Tim and Sophie know. <laughs> There's a cognitive dissonance song? Yes, there Oh, is. wow. I need to learn this. But yeah, so three and a half years later, my mum is fully vegan and my dad is mostly vegan. Or I should say mostly plant-based. And he is very excited to show me all the vegan recipes he makes and all the new products he finds. So it's awesome. I think the significant thing about your parents' journey is that you led by example. Yes. So I didn't want to push it. So I I was like, I'm just going to eat what I feel comfortable eating. If they ask questions about it, I would obviously engage in conversation. And yeah, just slowly they started following my suit. Yeah. Right. Sophie, do you have an interesting story to tell us about your transition? When I moved down to Adelaide a couple of years ago, I went vegetarian on the basis that I was living with three other vegetarians Mm -hmm. and I just moved out of home for the first time and meat was really expensive. So Mm. initially it was a convenience and economic thing. After that, one of my housemates who was really insightful about the whole thing said, well, have you actually thought about understanding a little bit more about the, let's call it a vegetarian and vegan movement, just did a couple of real base Google searches and was like, oh, this has some really good validity. This is very valid. It's um, something that I could definitely understand more about and um, would be really happy to sort of change my lifestyle. So I went vegetarian and when I travelled, I made a conscious decision to go pescatarian because I went to Asia and vegetarian and pescatarian were much of the same thing. Then last year, late last year, for convenience again, well, I kind of had somebody... I was asking a vegan about their experiences and their transition and everything. And it was sort of, well, have you thought about going vegan, Sophie? I was like, yeah, but X, Y, Z excuses that I love cheese and dairy. And they said, why don't you just give it a shot? And I haven't really gone back since. Yeah, it's been, for me, it was just a complete on one certain day. I just decided, okay, I'm done now. And it was, I've transitioned like that sort of overnight I found it very easy and I'm really happy to say my both my physical and mental health feel much better for the decision. I feel like there's much less on my conscience as well mm-hmm. about what I'm consuming every day. I think the interesting thing about both of your stories is that your home life was heavily involved in your in your transition. Mm-hmm. How how easy it is to to eat differently, uh, how how easy it is to yeah, to eat differently is highly dependent on what you're coming home to, what you're, you know, what you're eating with people at home. Yeah. Mm. Um, the social connectedness of it. Because, mm. you know, David, you'll come out with us for lunch after this episode and we'll all eat a, probably a vegan meal. Yeah, won't bug me at all. But again, Absolutely. that's the thing about it being an inquisitive omnivore. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's interesting food. I'll eat it. Well, you know, uh, Jade and I have a, a relative <laughs> who will not be named who is very against vegan meals to the point where he won't try them or will bag them regardless of how good they are, just yeah. resistant. Again, we're back to cognitive dissonance mm. again, a worldview that is not open to any reflection, mm. Mm. despite perhaps the ethical information, that it would be ethically better for all sorts of different critters. Mm. And yet that's strange for me, you know, being the farm boy that grew up on a farm, 
where critters got treated really well? Mm. My parents are both farmers and my mum grew up as a dairy farmer and she has taken, there's a lot of hostility there still about the vegan movement from her Mm. Um, and I think she feels often not from me but definitely online um, a personal attack saying that what her livelihood and everything that she knew growing up is something that is fundamentally unethical which is not a reflection of her experiences from the mm. way that she and says that, it to me. That's when I get stroppy about the pamphlets and the videos on veganism. Yeah. That it makes an assumption that the entire agricultural industry is awful. Yeah. Now the problem is most of the big agricultural industry is awful. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. And so in turn, my mum just very much refuses it and mm. is that same, doesn't want to know anything about a vegan meal, mm-hmm. says that it looks and smells disgusting, mm. but you can mm. definitely find her in the kitchen having a taste of it when nobody's looking. Precisely. Um, Whereas you know, my distinction is you know, we used to raise, kill, butcher and process our own cattle. Mm-hmm. So from age eight onwards, that's just normal. But what was also normal is the critter went from having a lovely day puddling around in a nice paddock with a nice tree to stand under, really fresh water, to a bullet in the head and it was all over. Mm. That most of the horrible stuff of the industry played no part in my early experience. And in a sense, part of what we see anthropologically, archaeologically, is most societies used to say thank you for any living thing they killed and ate and treated it with respect. And that was a primary condition of being at peace with the universe. And it's those two things that seem to have really been lost Mm. in mass agriculture and food processing. The respect for the creature when it was alive and the thank you for it not being alive anymore and the benefit you get. The the mass industrialisation of food removes any connection or respect with the organisms that may or may not be your food. So to have an ethical position against modern agriculture is very easy. For me, having an ethical position against a little family farm is very difficult. I still feel the same way if I ask myself that question. Would I still consume meat that way? I'm really uncomfortable about where my mind, how I actually want to answer that. Yeah. I hear this argument a lot, you know, someone, for instance, like Joe Rogan, who I'll bring up on the podcast many times, I'm sure, is someone that hunts his own meat. Uh, specifically Part of the kill it and grill it movement Yeah, kill it and grill it, that's a good way to describe it Ted Nugent did two cookbooks with that name Mm. Photos from finding it, hunting it, killing it, processing it And then grilling it Mm. To make sure people understood the entire process That's it, and he only eats, you know, certain Like really lean meat, like uh, venison Which, you know, we'll talk about Perhaps some of the health related parts of that later Because of course he, as someone who's extremely fit is really concerned with those kinds of things. But there's certainly some room, I think, in in the discussion that we'll have today about, you know, where is the line that you draw about when is it okay to eat meat and when is it not? When is, you know, when is it okay to to kill something and when is it not? You know, what is the level of sentience that is required for you to spare something of suffering? Mm. Well, you should spare everything of suffering, immaterial of how stupid it is. Mm. Simply, it becomes a reflection of what are we as humans, not mm. what is the creature. Mm. So, again, the whole thing in extant, you know, um, hunter-gatherer civilization societies mm-hmm. of showing respect and saying thank you is as much for the creature as it is for the person. And overall, it's for the entire effect on the universe. Mm. 
Right. Um, <laughs> Sorry. There I was I'm trying to think about big idea next. No, I don't. I don't. I'm well, just trying to think about what I, I wouldn't mind jumping in on the venison thing. Cause sure. Anyway. Okay. Just to jump back to the you know, talking about venison because it's an interesting one. And this gets us into the whole thing of, you know, we're talking about the human impact on species and environment mm. and our planet. So eating venison across most of the world is a really interesting question because in most of the world, alpha predators have been shot, poisoned, baited, killed, trapped, destroyed, mm. thus allowing large herbivores to end up in ridiculous levels. Mm. So all over Scotland, North America, the number of deers is infinitely too high mm. to the point where they destroy environments. Mm. They destroy forests, they destroy the edge of ponds, they destroy the edge of waterways, they cause untold problems with erosion, they stop regeneration simply because nothing's eating them. So ironically, humans altered environments killed alpha predators so that they could have the animals they wanted. But now if humans don't manage the deer, nothing does. Mm. So all over Scotland, the reason deer are hunted on estates is like a deer tastes yum. You know, venison's yummy. But also, if you didn't, your forest would deteriorate. Your hillsides would blow away. So it's really strange that we're in a situation where each time humans change their mind about how they perceive the environment, we create some new kind of problem. Hmm. And when we change our mind again, we might improve the situation to a degree, but we might not solve the last problem. So the interesting thing with veganism as a response to factory farming, a fantastic response, but in the ability to rehabilitate wild land, not particularly helpful at all so the thing i'm trying to get to is not picking on veganism but just saying in any situation the mess humans make always takes more than one ethical decision to fix it i'd say that i I think another consideration is you know you're saying that there are infinitely too many you know deer in in north america for instance or you know in, in multiple environments are there enough deer to feed you know the 350 million people that live in America, like, is if that were no, certainly not exactly. So, so it's only for those people who would either spend the money to eat a very expensive source of protein, mm. or get great joy out of developing the skill set, yeah, to you know hunt, kill, and process something yummy. Well, I'm going to take the protein thing and run with it, and then we can get into the moral arguments later because uh, these lovely ladies have joined us for I think those reasons. But mm. I switched to vegetarianism. Uh, while actually i'm going to start with i uh i quit milk i quit dairy before i even quit meat which actually made veganism an easier transition from vegetarianism because it was you know it's a large part i found it harder to give up eggs than i did dairy mm. yeah so i started with with milk and switched to yeah. uh, rice milk and then uh, i just decided to go to vegetarianism after i basically had a four-day stint without eating meat and found myself feeling quite good. Did a bit more research on it. And I was doing all this while I was in, I'm going to say, like a bodybuilding kind of phase, a phase where I was really into consuming a lot of protein. And this is a big argument that a lot of people have. It's, you know, I'm not going to get the amount of protein that, you know, I I need if I don't eat meat. I'm not going to get the amount of iron or, you know, uh, B12. And I want to bring this up because it's it's a quick five-minute point that, I think is is really easy to get over. Humans don't need as much protein 
as as you think. <laughs> no, we um, don't need it anywhere near as much mm. as most people fixated on building muscle think we need. That's right. And, you know, uh, a really good example of uh, it, it can actually be detrimental to consume more protein than... Uh, well, it's just hard on your kidneys and liver if you eat too much of it. It is, but there's, a, you know, another consideration is that you know, red meat especially has links to cancer. Mm. Cancer, at least some forms of it, um, or you know, big forms of it, like so colon cancer, uh, prostate cancer, breast cancer, rely on certain forms of amino acids. So uh, a good one to bring up here is uh, methionine or methionine, which, yeah, uh, for instance, yeah, so uh, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, I think lung cancer too, relies on in- incredibly heavily to the point that uh, methionine restriction is actually a form of treatment for those cancers. Methionine is in high concentrations in red meat. Removing red meat for your di- from your diet is basically a form of curing that, like the, uh, you know, those forms of cancer, um, mm. or or at least you know, reducing me- the risk, reducing the risk even. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it actually has preventative effects, and these things are dose responsive. So if you reduce your intake by you know one meal a week, it reduces your risk by you know a, a proportionate amount. So you know it's not as if you know having one bit of red meat is the same risk as having five. So, um, you know, the amount that you can reduce, if any, is is worth it. The biggest causes of death in Australia are things like uh, ischemic heart diseases or uh, dementia. These are or, or um, diabetes. These are uh, chronic diseases. Diseases that are uh, diseases that are caused by your lifestyle choices, mm. or, um, or, or can be caused by your lifestyle choices. Your diet, exercise, things like that. So, lots of the lots of these things are dependent on your diet. Um, this was my reason for going plant-based. This my reason for going uh, vegetarian. And then when I met Jade, transitioning to mostly 90% plant-based, 90% of the time. Of the time. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm probably a little bit pragmatic about it. I'm going to say 95% of the time I will only eat plant-based. It, it's probably even higher than that. Well, it is because when you come to the Stuff Club with me and eat the big veggie pasty, <laughs> the likelihood is it's probably a hydrogenated vegetable oil yeah. giving the pastry its texture rather than butter because yeah. butter would cost more. That's it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's got to be like, you know, milk solids, like milk powder or something, mm. you know, it's, it's going to be, yeah. Or it, it might be egg. That's probably it. And even that it's probably egg powder. Mm. Yes. So, you know, I decided to take on this diet for health reasons and it's not a diet that is purely, or these are not choices that are purely uh, emotional and you can thrive. You can live on, on these lifestyle choices. So you know, I just want to remove that argument uh, immediately. Mm. Iron you can find in you know, lots of greens. There's a big argument around B12. I'm going to quickly bring that up and then we'll move on. B12 is uh, a, a vitamin that basically comes from uh, bacteria in soil, which is in well, theoretically should be in vegetables. So if you have your own organic garden bed at home, you will probably have B12 in your vegetables. However, the vegetables that you buy from supermarkets are hyper-sanitized. So all the pesticides and you know, all those things basically kill the bacteria in the soil that uh, produce B12. And so the, the, the vegetables that humans eat don't have any B12 embedded in them. The vegetables or the grains and, and the things like that that we feed animals have B12 in them. And so, of course, B12 is embedded in, in meat and in a Western diet that is the main source of uh, B12. You can get fortified processed uh, vegan b12 foods um but yeah generally speaking it's better to just go for an organic 
vegetable to, to source that or you can take a supplement which is the only supplement that I take that is the only thing that I need to supplement in my diet I don't need to think about iron I don't need to think about protein all of those things I can source uh, from a whole food uh, plant-based diet I just wanted to bring that up because we can't have I don't think we can have a discussion about the morality of a, a, a vegan or a plant-based diet without first accepting that we can thrive on it. Mm. The yeah. fundamental mm. question is an ethical question, mm. not a physiological question. Okay, from doing some reading for this today, there are some complex problems to solve for pregnant women with veganism. Mm. It's not that it's impossible, but it's got to be very deliberate what you find to eat at the right times. But that's only because the modern world knows more. For all these societies that were essentially you know, vegetarian before anyone thought of vegan because quite simply gathering was more successful than hunting. Mm. Well, humans haven't died out yet from not getting the balances of these things exactly right. Mm. Yeah, The standard answer is that the fetus will take anything it damn well pleases from mum. So it's mum in the long run that suffers, not the baby normally. Mm. But yeah, that is about the only time it seems to be an issue of trying to get some things. And that is also very much a thing of Let's just go back to, say, the Roman diet in the height of the Roman Empire. The average Roman ate 120 different plants per year. Mm. We're down to 17 on average, mm. you know, with iceberg lettuce being a disproportionately high proportion. <laughs> <laughs> and sorry, there is nothing in iceberg lettuce. Basically, yeah. So, you know, from 120 to 17, mm. huge difference. No variety. No. There's a good uh, example as well in, in the China study, which there's a lot of flaws been found in this study, but mm. this was basically a period of time in China where people were so poor they could not afford meat. It was between the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, wasn't it? Mm. So the population had been smashed by bad political decisions which had led to bad agriculture, mm. which had led to you know mass borderline starvation. So this would be a kind of a, a mix between intermittent fasting and plant-based diet, right? Because you couldn't afford meat. And, and, and you know, the reduction in diseases and, and, and cancers and stuff was studied and, and mm. you know, thought to be significant. I mean, it's still been disproven, but you can find examples of these kind of cross-sectional studies, um, mm. yeah, if you, if you want to read out. So, you know, if the moral arguments that we're about to make convince you, go do your own research. Now... Guys, uh, I know that you're a fan of Peter Singer, um, who is, of course, coming... Well, you know, he's made significant contributions to this discussion. So he's an Australian philosopher and, yeah, he he advocates for uh, a vegan or, or a plant-based diet, a vegan lifestyle, I would say. Hello, Peter. If you're listening, come and talk to us. Mm, absolutely. It would be great to have on the podcast, especially following this conversation. What, for the two of you, I'll start with Sophie are the biggest kind of moral arguments. What was, what convinced you? There's definitely Peter Singer's contribution to sentience. Mm. That as a lead on from that and a lead on from does or should everything be valued equally. I think that I, I really truly am convinced that yes, animals should then, given that an animal is a sentient being, should also be valued as highly as what a human should be which has its own issues as far as, well, should we then be treating animals the exact same way, giving them the luxurious lifestyles that humans have? Well, I'm going to say no. But when it comes to me consuming them, they also don't deserve to be put through they, that, that pain, that suffering. I think that's the, the 
initial base platform for veganism, definitely. Jade? Yeah, my my main argument that I go back to is sentience from Peter Singer as well. Just looking into it, if if creatures can feel pain and pleasure and fear, which I would argue most can, I just, especially in a developed country, I don't see the need to harm them when we have options not to. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I think then the next thing to build onto that for myself and for my motives is the environmental impact that consuming meat, dairy, fish, etc., yeah. has on our planet, which we are at a pretty frightening point of our world. I think given where we are today and what needs to be changed in the practices of every single individual who has the ability to, and by that I mean us that are really lucky to live in a developed Western wealthy democracy, I can make the conscious choice to not consume these things and in turn be doing the extra 10% for environmental impact and on top of that doing my basic recycling and avoiding plastics and soft plastics etc so for me it goes sentience and then environmental impact and then my own conscious thoughts of well I don't feel so bad when I go to sleep at night (laughs) about what I've done during the day to maybe hurt something else yeah it's you know I've heard someone describe it that you have more room in your heart for compassion which is a very emotional very kind of intangible argument Uh, but I I think that's a nice way to describe it it's that if you're at least conscious if you're you know you you would feel if you felt guilty about eating meat not eating meat allows you more room to kind of be kind of I guess guess what you're describing is it rids you of a sort of emotional burden yeah maybe that's a better way to describe it Mm. see to go to the sentience argument turn the tv on one day in the background as I do because you can listen as well as watch it's kind (laughs) of entertaining a wonderful documentary on octopi mm-hmm. and a researcher in uh, Italy who'd found on a reef where lots of people dive and there's lots of food, rather than the octopi being separate little dudes and dudettes doing their own thing, they were hanging out together. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. And they were you know, flashing colours to each other, but not to do with either aggression or mating season. And it dawned on him, they're communicating. So he started catching some of them and you know, doing tests in the lab where one would be allowed sort of food in a container in its tank and it would work out how to open the container to get you know, its lunch out. But when they would move the curtain back and then put the uh, you know, food box with the food in, in the other tank, the one that knew how to do it would show its friend how to get in faster and save it the time. That's so cool. Yeah, cool. it's amazing. It's also the point where I stopped eating octopus. Because <laughs> I'm like, sorry, something that sentient? Uh-uh. Mm. So mm. it's interesting. You guys have taken a, a real, a general sentience kind of position, whereas I, I'm on a, a sliding scale, whereas you know, I've never wanted to eat anything like a dolphin or a whale that can clearly think, you know, don't want to eat a great ape. Now don't want to eat octopus. But for me, it's still a sliding scale of sentience where – you know, all the years of having cows on the farm that will come up for a pat, I'm happy to give them a pat right up to the two minutes before they, you know, they die and become steak. That that level of sentience they've got is, you know, they're sweet-natured creatures. 
But to me, it's always the sentience in balance, in that case, with that lower level of sentience, with a respect for their life and how their life ends. Mm. And that's the thing, I guess. And again, Sophie, this is something maybe we can go into a bit both being farm kids. But most vegans I know aren't farm kids. Mm. So they've got no connection to the animals first. All they see is the, the horror of mass agriculture. Have you found when you talk about becoming a vegan to other people that your experiences as a farm kid first mean you've come at it from a slightly different angle? I guess so. I definitely grew up. I grew up on a farm with we had um, for many years so I later learnt was not always the same pet sheep. There was a pet sheep always around, <laughs> always called lamb chops. Um, <laughs> hey, it's a great thing to laugh at. We always, every time we got twin cattle, one would be T-bone and the other would be schnitzel. Absolutely. And then I, mum was always very honest about we were eating lamb chops, but silly little eight-year-old Sophie uh. didn't realise that lamb chops are still next to me though. And I knew that that animal was loved and cared for and hand-fed by me every day and I had a lead and a collar for it and used to walk it down the road. And so I, as a child, definitely felt no guilt about eating that and I still today don't feel guilt about eating those animals. And the lifestyle that my parents raised me under was we ate steak and potatoes probably five to six nights a week and my mum and dad still do eat steak and potatoes five to six nights a week and I can see that if agriculture and horticulture etc was something that in the means of including large-scale meat production if that was something that tomorrow was legislated against my parents wouldn't have a livelihood Mm. and my community would not thrive the way that it still Mm. thrives and that would be thousands of people who are wonderful human beings which is not a basis for anyone deserving a a nice lifestyle everyone deserves a nice lifestyle nonetheless that would kill my community and Mm. that's not something I'm comfortable with and I have to play on it has to play on my mind that a lot of farmers don't necessarily choose farming for the love and the passion consciously that's something that they grow into it. Absolutely. Yeah. That is where their skill set lies. They I know that my my parents couldn't move to the city and get an office job tomorrow because that's not the experiences they have in their life. Mm. Habituation is incredibly powerful. Mm. And that's a thing I think this is why I've ended up in the middle of the spectrum where the sentience thing is very important to a degree. The respect for the creatures is very important. But I can't shift entirely from having seen it being done at a micro scale at about the best level it can be done, mm. which now is the reason why you, you probably couldn't make me eat steak five nights a week. Mm. I wouldn't want to, but I'm also not going to stop eating at one. So I've ended up in a really funny bit in the middle. We're going, Funny bit for me, going away as a little blind kid on these camps in the summer holidays run, I think, by the Seventh-day Adventists. But they used to put these camps on. It turns out if you're really serious in that religion, you're vegetarian. But, you know, three days into the camp of amazing food, someone said, we haven't eaten any meat. Mm. I remember having this point of going, really? Mm, Don't care, it's all yummy. And that being this critical observation as a little kid at maybe nine or ten, that what mattered was, well, what I'm eating is yummy. And I hadn't even thought about what it was. And I thought, well, that's interesting. At nine or ten, you don't expect to think about it. But also the being surprised about vegetarian. Some people immediately at that point, once it had been pointed out, had the cognitive dissonance of, oh, well, this is weird, this is different. We've got to go across the river. We have to canoe across and get a steak sandwich. Mm. 
I'm like, why? The food's awesome. So somehow there's an ability to be habituated very strongly to things like what you eat. Or there's an ability to be really open to it being different. But just It seems interesting because you know, we've talked about the examples like people <laughs> who it's just like, no, not even going there. Hmm. And yet and then there's people who are very flexible. And I wonder if the flexible people are the more likely ones to then make the ethical choice. Hmm. I think a lot of the issue comes from, and again, back in my community, I see, especially in the means of sharing things on Facebook, vegan and veganism has become a really dirty word for a lot of farmers because I guess in light of the recent vegan protests in Melbourne, there were then um, a lot of animal rights activists that did some questionable things that I wouldn't agree with. And they have taken things to a level of extremism and extremism in any following and movement. Always loses people. Absolutely. Every time. And that's just not the way to go about things. And I don't think that anybody should be sitting here and be a vegan to, you know, make veganism a cult of the world. It's hard. It's because it's... Ultimately, it is an emotive thing. It is. Um, I mean, this is why I keep trying to bring it back to the moral. And it's interesting that you keep bringing it back to the emotion. Mm. Because to me, the real power in the persuasive arguments I've heard is the moral power. Because emotional power rarely persuades me. No, it doesn't. Because I realize my amygdala is getting all excited and wants (laughs) to be involved. And I go, shut up, amygdala. You don't get a say in David being rational. You're right. The emotional part of it is not persuasive. Mm. However, you know, for instance, I know that Jade and I probably wouldn't be together if I were omnivorous. You know, that is a significant part of my relationship to food still. I mean, you know, I was we independently reached our Mm. diet conclusions, I suppose. But yeah, but people need to be complementary for partnerships to work. Totally, but our diet choices are not a sharing of values. I think that's the that's the interesting thing about it. It's just that they are they are compatible almost by coincidence. Mm. Would you say though that that's a something that you can bond over? Certainly, like, got to help, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. yeah, I know that this is not important in terms of the conversation. I just mean that I think that is a good example of how. You know, it is it is an emotional thing for people, and that's how you become a militant vegan. It's because you can see other people consuming meat, and it actually affects you. It, it really actually, on that emotional side and the militant veganism. Mm. I, from the outside, often feel that's more people who are very, 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 very serious environmentalists. Mm. That the more militant vegans I've, I've spoken to, are the people who just don't just look at the ethical situation of eating another you know, living being that feels pain and pleasure. It's seeing the bigger picture of environmentalism. You know, would you guys sort of agree that that seems to be where the more, the more militant end become more militant or, or am I getting it wrong from the outside? Mm. I would probably say just from my experiences on vegan social media pages and whatnot because people tend to let themselves go in those groups because everyone is vegan in there, I think think people are more militant from an ethical side from what i've seen purely because the emotions just get really heightened in that i think i can agree to the sense that like if it's a combination of ethical and environmental it just heightens that yeah because it's coming out from multiple points you're doubling down so deep that the impact on the person and both an ethical and an 
emotional level become so strong. Yeah. Well, yeah. How, yeah. How often do you see the Republican vegan or the you know the the national voting you know vegan? I think I think you know, it's it's just it's not very common. Well, I, that would be really interesting to get that contrasting viewpoint and mm. see how they make sense of it. Well, funny talking about that. So this is probably a slightly off topic, but again, in those groups that I'm in, when it came to voting time, politics were discussed and anyone who admitted to being a liberal voter was harshly criticised mm. by other members. So, so it's not just an ethical or an environmental choice. It also becomes a political choice. Yeah. So it becomes a more encompassing identity than perhaps people realise as they make the decision to eat differently and then to not replace their leather wallet. I think in some yeah. respect it is it is considered a trait or like a common uh, like almost a common symptom of of like of being left wing, right? I think that's how people view it. It's it's like, you know, the greenies, the the lefties are vegan. Yeah, but it's also we could talk about the union movement. Mm. You know, in blue singlets and steel caps. <laughs> uh, I'm not assuming there's going to be much veganism inside. Yeah. Well, so you know. it's the irony, what the new left or the old left. So we get into all sorts of political distinctions. Definitely. So it's really interesting and kind of odd. Curiosity question from you guys. Having eaten in enough vegan places now because so many people in my life are vegetarian or vegan, is it just my imagination or am I going to be basically the oldest person sitting in any of these <laughs> restaurants and am I going to be in a minority being male? That's um, a good question. Because certainly what I hear is I'm the oldest person in the room and I... My feeling is it's never more than one third male in the room. Yeah, I think that's a. I, yeah. I, I notice this as well, the male thing. Yeah. yeah, I would probably agree with both yeah. of those statements. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because I've what I've often wondered with it is one, is it a generational thing? And well, of course, I think probably it is because as more people decide to be vegan, the easier it is if you think you want to do it to go, well, I can do this because people around me are doing it. Mm. So you, you don't lose social connection in the process. So to me, it, it being more younger people makes sense. But the apparent gender imbalance, and this just might be an Adelaide thing of the places I regularly go with you guys. True. But it, it's interesting from my perspective. And you know, historically, I would have said, well, okay, in an earlier generation, it might have been who does the majority of cooking women because mm. they're socially excluded from mm. public life. But in a world where that's less the case and this is more about an ethical environmental decision making, I would expect to see more even numbers, you know, gender wise, sitting in a vegan restaurant. Do we do we have any ideas why this might be the case? Or are the places where we go and eat lunch you know, unrepresentative of what you see on social media in terms of gender? Well Well, you're part of the vegan group, so you would see even just the membership. Yeah. Yeah. The membership, because I'm in about three or four different groups, it's very swayed towards females. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And it's it's a running joke in multiple of the groups that are there any males in this group or just it's constantly brought up that there are a lower number of males. Um, and I can't remember where I saw the statistics, but I think it was Australian-wide. I don't think it was worldwide. But um, veganism, it's about a 70-30 split between wow. genders. So wow. it's like decent difference. I I wonder if it comes down to more, again, the emotional side, more um, yeah, like an empathy. Agreeableness. Um, yeah. Like maternal. Mater like nurturing. and Yeah. Or even just I think empathy is a wonderful word because it, it's part of all those things. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder if it's empathy plus health. 
So there's an interesting question here about social connectedness, I think. And you know, as much as we're in a society now where it's meant to be normal for you know men and women to see each other as equals and you know a proportion of society, i.e. the people sitting at this table and a few others, are striving for that, there may be different levels or different ways that social connectedness functions. Where maybe girls are more willing to talk about something like veganism amongst their group of friends and be more supportive of people <laughs> taking socially difficult choices if other people in the group have already done it. Does that, that yeah. sound reasonable or sensible? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Also because I think that I, I genuinely think, at least in the West, there's a cultural thing. So you could look at you know certain religions uh, and their approaches to food, you know, say uh, Hinduism, for instance, that yeah, you might find that you know that gender swaying is 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 completely different, but you know, a different country. But I think in the in in the in the Western case, there is, I'm going to say, a cultural association of especially red meat to maleness to yeah. masculinity in some way. Like you know, I'm a man. I'm going to have my 500 gram rump steak mm. and a beer. See, th- this is interesting because culturally. Yeah, part of it is language. Language is fascinating. Sorry for the digression, but I think it's actually really interesting. Mm. Before the Normans took over England, you were eating cow or pig or sheep. Mm -hmm. It was only after the Normans arrived that you were eating beef or pork or lamb Mm. that you distinguished what you were eating different to the animal it came from. Yeah, interesting. And that historically it was the upper class could afford to eat more meat, the aristocrats and then the growing middle class so it almost seems to be a characteristic of the industrial world that as suddenly working in the factory pays you enough that you're not on starvation rations part of the way you show that is to eat more meat so there's a weird old cultural thing that eating meat is a sign of wealth now the chinese at the moment are going through there we can afford more meat we're going to buy more meat Mm. and it's causing them monumental problems environmentally and health-wise yeah, they've got some variant, I think at the moment, the swine flu that's creating havoc, um, having to import huge amounts of pigs to replace the ones that are dying, not just the ones that are being eaten, you know, importing more and more beef and starting to get all the health problems that come from excess meat eating as a sign of social status. Mm. So an interesting question here is even a step towards trying to encourage society to not see meat eating as a status activity even that would be a nice step forward Mm -hmm. for me as an inquisitive omnivore i want to eat steak because i'm looking forward to a bit of steak Mm -hmm. i don't want someone eating steak because it makes them feel like they're fabulous and successful because that's not a good reason for a a critter to have lived and died well i was just about to suggest that maybe it should be some kind of delicacy or treat though because you know i'm i'm slightly feeling bad here david because you know in the past uh, three and a half years, the only time that I've ever eaten meat was when I was on a holiday in Japan mm. and I ate octopus balls. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, right, dude, so, when they come out the water wearing helmets full of yeah, water going, humans, we now live longer than three years. I'll be first. You have been evil. <laughs> yeah. We hunt you now. That's right. I'm just a Japanese nightmare. <laughs> Return of the octopi. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know, and, and I also ate Kobe beef because, of course, that's you know, one of the best places to yeah, but a cow that got to drink beer and got massaged all day. Yeah. Is that I, yeah. just weird or what? Yeah. 
honestly. And it cost me like it was maybe 50 Australian dollars for about 50 grams of beef. Yeah, so, which was predominantly fat yeah. and you were meant to like the texture. Yeah, yeah and it was amazing. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it because I did. Yeah. That's exactly why I did it though. Yeah. And, and, for the I experience. It was for the experience. Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, I don't particularly feel guilty about that. And I want to talk a bit about the guilt in a second, but... Should we approach meat as something? Is it is it more pragmatic maybe to approach it as like uh, something you have every now and then? Is it is it is it a, 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 just should we just treat it as a smaller part of our diet for the everyman? Well, can I start because I'm the omnivore and then I can stop and you guys can talk. But from my perspective, when what we see is that most people in the developed world eat processed garbage. Mm-hmm. You need to be very careful that we make sure that in that processed garbage is enough of what people need to be moderately healthy. And that if eating some meat stops them eating, you know, things made out of highly genetically modified wheat or corn and hydrogenated vegetable oils and seed oils, mm-hmm. I think I'll go for letting people eat some meat. Yeah. And now I'll be the quiet little omnivore while you guys work out. <laughs> I have a few things to say with that sort of make it a specialty or a delicacy. The problem behind that is that that then restricts it to a real privileged class of wealth who can only afford mm. that. I, I wouldn't want it to be... Not necessarily in price, yeah, but in terms yeah. of when you eat it, like yeah. birthdays and Christmas. Yeah, well, like a chocolate bar. Too. But yeah, it's also kind of- consider, though, that it's sort of still is the case. If you, like you just said, David, the stuff that we're eating now is this crappy, really highly processed, mm. probably very low in nutritional value style of meat. The best of the organic stuff and the high-end cuts of meat, etc., they're the things that, I mean, let's say I was eating meat, that somebody that lives off of like one and a half days work a week and a bit of Centrelink, I wouldn't be able to afford no, that anyway. They become rarities. Absolutely. Yeah. But then there's also that end of the spectrum for veganism, I think, because for me to eat organic vegetables, is very costly. expensive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then I also... I, I love the fake meat substitutes. Last night, my partner and I went and bought a thing of tofurkey ham for our pizza. And that was like $8, but the rest mm. of the pizza ingredients were like $20 for 10 different things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's a real problem is that, and this is, so again, we can get into it in a minute, but the, the substitute foods, <laughs> like I assume after we're going to 2-Bit Villains, let's put, <laughs> let's put an ad in for 2-Bit Villains. 2-Bit Villains is amazing. <laughs> And but, Juice Lovers. Well, Juice yeah. Lovers is good too, but Two-Bit <laughs> Villains is the one that makes the amazing almost pretend it's got the same texture as a proper hamburger patty. Yeah, that's the place foods. you can take your carnivore yeah. friends. Oh, you know? mean? Yeah. Mm. But you know, th- that idea of the substitute food, like the fact that you guys were looking for something to put in your pizza that was kind of like ham. Yeah. It's really interesting to see as as more and more people become vegan over more and more time, will there be less people hunting for substitute foods. Yeah, because I'm habituated to, to eating precisely. ham on my yeah. pizza. Yeah. You so want, I want something to do that. that tastes like, whereas over time will it become just more and more normal for a vegetable diet to not need mm. to look otherwise. Yeah, that's it's it's really interesting when you get into this argument. I think that's the biggest transitioning thing is that people when they yeah. make bolognese they want to put mince in it. When you have pizza you want to put ham mm. on it. When yeah. you have curry you want to put chicken in it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Whereas getting away from substitution and I think this is what I find so interesting is Again, two-bit villains, awesome. Juice lovers, awesome, but awesome in different ways. Juice lovers, to me, seems to do less substitution food. Mm. Whereas two-bit villains is that place where, you know, if you didn't tell someone they were eating it, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't work it out until the end. Mm. Mm. And I can probably 
pretty safely say, and it's a bit of cognitive dissonance again, that I don't really know the environmental impacts of these substitute foods. They're probably just as bad as eating meat if it comes in a, when it comes to terms of production and packaging there's so much plastic in them mm. but here i am valuing a bit of quality of life over always being this environmental warrior that's just pragmatism it is it, yeah. it, it, it's about mitigation strategy mm. and i've avoided saying it till now because i don't want it to become an ad nauseum statement but so many of these things it seems to be if you can see that what you're doing is the best mitigation strategy you can manage you can make peace with yourself mm. but if you see the overarching huge problems of environmentalism and what to do about creatures being sentient how they should be treated it could be just too enormous to deal with as an individual mm. you know you have to be able to make peace with some level of mitigation like okay you know sophie wants her ham substitute big deal it's the one thing she bought this week that wasn't you know whole vegetables mm. or you know raw vegetable ingredients and that well so be it it's not the end of the world because all of this is just a mitigation strategy to move towards a more ethical world, an environmentally more stable, less damaged world in which your conscience feels comfortable. Your yeah, conscience feels comfortable. Whereas I'm the weird little human, well, actually, I'm not going to say I'm weird, I'm the meat eater in the room who doesn't really have a conscience problem, hmm. which is a whole other issue. <laughs> <laughs> You monster, David. Thank you. No, the problem is I'm smiling about it, listeners. I'm cool with being the, the monster. He's the good psychopath. That's yeah, that's me. You know, come here, coffee, coffee, coffee. Jane. No, I don't like feel. Oh, so sorry. I, sorry, I jump back in. I made a joke about coffee, 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 and I don't like feel because mm. it's a little critter that doesn't taste good. <laughs> yeah, and there's a sign of aristocratic meat eating. We'll take something that could grow big and feed tens of people. Mm. and we'll eat it when it's little and can feed two. Mm. Now, to that I say get stuffed. So that's where I do have a problem. Oh, that's good. I do have a problem. I'm not a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I want to touch on the guilt thing because you, you said earlier, Soph, uh, Sophie, you, you don't feel guilty about eating meat when you were when you used to, when you were omnivorous, when you, went, when you were younger, and especially when you even had contact with the animals that you were killing, which is a whole separate problem with people not knowing where their food comes from. But... Mm. Jade, do you feel at all any any guilt, any any feeling at all about eating meat when you when you did? I I do to an extent. Mm. I don't think I feel a lot of guilt purely because at that point in my life I wasn't aware of what I was doing. That I don't know, that maybe that's a It's with awareness out. potentially comes guilt. You can try and have guilt backwards, but that's profoundly unhealthy. Yeah. It is. Like taking on guilt for a period where you weren't aware, fine. Acknowledge I didn't know better. Yeah. Now I do. And then if you choose, do something about it. But it, yeah. Oh residual. Well it's not even residual, it's prequel guilt. Prequel guilt, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I think we want to avoid prequel guilt. <laughs> yeah, I, I I guess I wouldn't say it's guilt. It's more I want to say it's more that I'm shocked that I didn't realize because of how strongly I feel about it now and how almost obvious it is to me. Maybe maybe guilt's the wrong word. Is it remorse or regret? I slightly feel sad that I didn't realize sooner. Mm. And I I think to go from here, if I pose you the question, if you knew what you knew now 10 years ago, given that we're so young, that's (laughs) a hard one, but when you were able to start making those real conscious decisions of understanding, would you act differently? 
it's hard to say um again because of our age yeah um but i think if if i did have that information and i could understand it back then i think i would have wanted to act differently i'd say yeah. you would have been so you know just to review your yeah. age here, you would have been 14 yes i think that probably is an age where you can start making like independent decisions you're old enough to start having maybe not to say every day because you don't pay for the shopping yes but to have so to go back to my experience of you know age i think i was nine or ten the first time i went to the camp and ate vegetarian for a week Mm. that would have been the first time in my life that i would have eaten you know a whole day's vegetarian food let alone a week's worth yep and i remember positively that what i learned out of it is anything that tastes good i like Mm. Well, interestingly, not that it had an ethical impact because I think I was too young for that at nine Mm. or ten. When um, my sister was quite young, I don't actually know how young she was, let's say seven or so, she just said to mum and dad one day, Oh, I I don't like the taste of that meat. So they stopped serving her meat Mm. as a child rather than saying, Well, Stephanie, don't be a little brat, eat what we're (laughs) giving you because you're not making it. So they let her for a number of years just not eat meat, just Mm. gave her Mm. other options. But now here my sister and I are again as, you know, 23 and 25-year-olds and making the conscious decision to not consume these things and now they have the issue with it when we can justify it. It's quite a It's funny... interesting contrast, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. To sort of jump into something that, you know, we, we've got near and not got to, we're getting close to the point of, you know, lab-grown, cell-cultured mm-hmm. meat. So we'll be able to have warehouses full of cell culture growing take a biopsy from an animal once and just keep culturing it. You know, all the, the sort of nutrient you give to it is vegetable derived. How do you three feel potentially about, you know, if you went somewhere and that's on the menu, would you eat it? I personally wouldn't eat it, but I think it's great. I would love if that was the norm in the future. Yeah. Uh, just from, I'm probably very like strict in my thinking around veganism, but just because you do take that biopsy at the start, I feel a bit weird about it. And okay. yeah, I don't know. I'd be more likely to eat that. Though. So if you went somewhere, it was the only thing on, you might go, okay, my normal thing would still to be avoided, but today the only things available yeah. are things that have got cell cultured meat. Because yeah. me as the inquisitive omnivore, I'm really looking forward to that day yeah. where I can still easily get meat because I like meat. And, you know, it's never going to replace a, a piece of grass-fed beef that wandered around for four years in a nice environment having a pleasant time, which affects the texture. But for everything else, if I can easily get that in a stir-fry or, you know, you can make ham out of something that was cell-cultured first, i got no problem. It solves so mm. many problems. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. Uh, the, the water, it you know, solves... Land use. Yeah. Land use. Um, How you feed creatures because you're not feeding whole creatures. You're making something to just feed cell cultures. One so thing we haven't even touched on yet is antibiotics, mm. which yeah. is like animals are a massive part of our antibiotic resistance. Well, it's most of the antibiotic use in the world yeah. mm. is critters so that we can have them you know, under sort of you know, mass housing conditions, mm. which isn't you know, cheap for us and no good for them. Mm. Mm. I think with the cell-derived meat alternatives, I have a few ways to think about it. Firstly, what happens to all of the farmers? We don't need them anymore. What do they do? Yeah. That's a livelihood gone. Well, do we not need them or do they move towards producing the plants we need You know, to, again, cell culture everything? Well, let's say then we do have to 
I mean, those basic farming skills are still there, but there's still a whole livelihood shift. It's very possible. It's something, though, that I can imagine many rural communities would be very hesitant towards. And secondly, we have already established earlier that a plant-based diet is something that can sustain us very easily. So in my utopia, we don't need these things because we can sustain ourselves phenomenally well without these these cell-grown meats. To ask a question because I don't know the answer, maybe you three do. If we wanted to feed everyone on plants, Mm -hmm. how do we go (laughs) land-wise? Do we use less land? Do we use the same amount of land? What happens land-use-wise? Do we... Has anyone modelled that? Do we know what happens? I've seen some rough statistics on it because a lot of our um, crop growing land is used to sustain animals and grow animals. Yes, to grow the grass and the grain. So a lot of it's not really being used for things that we directly eat. It's feeding other critters. Yeah, Yeah. a high amount of it, yeah. So if um, we stopped producing animals and use that land to grow food suitable for humans, I'm pretty sure... I've read that it would sustain the whole world, basically, okay, so including those who can't. We wouldn't have eat. to clear any more land. We could just swap across. Yeah. Okay. Now, this needs to be a slow process because mm. you, if you were to you know, flick a switch and make everyone vegan tomorrow, you would almost have to have a mass genocidal oh, extinction yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's not yeah, going to no, happen yeah. Yeah. of, of, yeah, it's not of animals happen. because you would have to then feed every, everything yeah. on planet earth with plants so but that's it's not going to work it I would mean, need to be a slow transition i feel like it's always going to be a transition anyway because yeah. it's a, true i'm and, just saying that no, you know, yeah, as part of a, you know yeah. a sophie's a quality yes. world yeah. i think that's something that's <laughs> That's definitely an argument that's come up. People have said to me, "Oh, but what are you going to do with all the animals?" Mm. But it would be a slow, it would be a slow um, transition. You just deliberately don't keep replacing the herd or the flock or the the whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I think another argument that comes from that is people like, "Oh, but um, creatures like cows, pigs, they're they're going to have no use. They're going to go extinct." But personally, I don't think that's an issue. If well, the other extent. thing too is to such an extent they are a product of us needing manageable creatures. These so we know that cows were originally were forest oxen and could kill us. Yes. And now we have mellow dairy cows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really the mellow dairy cow is far more a consequence of us mm-hmm. than it has anything to do with being a cow. Yeah. You know, when you look at forest oxen in India still kill tigers, you wow. don't want to mess with a forest oxen. So do we really mind if the dopey infantilized <laughs> human-centric critters just aren't replaced. Mm. Is it really such a problem? Yeah, these animals still exist out in the wild. Well, hopefully Um, there'd be more because we wouldn't need to encroach on them anymore. Yeah. It's very much like the domestic house pet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't need them. We take comfort from them. Um, Well, the Egyptians argued they needed cats to kill snakes. So, Well, but they could also live amongst a community very free as we would maybe consider feral cats running around. Mm. They're still going to kill a a snake whether I bring it into my home and let it sleep in my bed or not. Yeah. So it's that thing of relatively are you leaving the thing more or less intact as what it was? How much are you altering it to suit our need for an infantilized, easy-to-manage creature? Mm. There's totally a historical need and cause for, I'm not going to remember what it's called, animal... Husbandry. Husbandry. Thank you. So and and I think the same is you know can be said for for meat eating you know caveman X you know would 
feast or famine, find the blueberries, like we've said in another podcast, mm. kill a tiger or lion or whatever it is, eat meat and then sleep for 36 hours. Well, we're that. probably not going to kill the, <laughs> the predator because in the main, it's not going to taste as good and it's more dangerous. Yeah, well, okay, we'll kill an ox, I don't know, yeah. kill something, but a pig. Again, <laughs> this is the thing, you know, we, we say hunter-gatherer mm. because we come from a society where there's status in eating meat. Mm. It was gatherer and sometimes hunter mm. because gathering worked nearly every day. Hunting only worked occasionally. Too many variables. And people got fat in the good time of the year and people nearly died in the bad time <laughs> of the year. And that was human history the majority of the time until 10,000 years ago. But this is the basis for why the burden of a convincing argument is now on you know, the, the both of you as vegans. You know, it's interesting that you, we could ask the question, or oh, why, you know, they might say, why don't you eat meat? And you could say, well, why do you eat meat? Mm. But mm. I think, you know, it's a societal norm. The burden, unfortunately, I think is on, is on the both of you to kind of, to make your case. And I, I think in some respect, there's not a lot of, there's not room, but I don't think people are open to hearing those reasons out and i think the easy explanation for that is that if we stay ignorant we don't have to bear the guilt we don't have to bear the well i've tried to answer these questions for myself coming into today as the omnivore at the table Mm -hmm. and i realized it's it's a probably a twofold thing and i think it's good to get why i eat meat out the way first because it might help you know sophie and jade make a counter argument to me Mm -hmm. more easily Mm -hmm. i think it's it's a twofold thing i eat meat because most of the things i do I do to try and make the world a better place, but I see everything as a mitigation strategy. And I want maximum potential return on the decision I make. And there's lots of things I do, like how I teach at uni, you know, how I go out and educate people in other environments, how I'll buy a T-shirt made by somewhere where they're allowed to have a union, you know, all these little choices. And those mitigations, I find, I feel I can get more of a mitigating effect on the awfulness of capitalism and the damage of sort of environmental degradation than I think I could get with food. So that's half number one. Half number two really interested me. Well, answer number two really interested me when I worked it out. And I only worked it out sort of this morning you know, during my yoga lesson. And it was with one sense missing, food is such an immense pleasure mm-hmm. and in a lot of days stops me screaming, mm-hmm. going, fuck the world annoys me. Also, like you know, I was thinking about this earlier, I think in some respect, trying to convince you to become vegan would 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 be would be difficult because I think the, the logistics of actually being vegan in today's society would be way more difficult than for us. You know, we can sit there and read the ingredients on a chip packet. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to drive me mad. Yeah, every time you buy chips, you're going to get milk powder. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yep. all those kind of silly things you don't find out for until you've got vegan out friends. There, kettle chips are generally safe. Yes. Oh, and the wonderful bolder ones from America, mm. where Ooh. they're cooked in avocado oil, so no horrible seed oils. Mm. Yeah, avocado oil, unfortunately, uh, high in saturated fat. But I don't care about that. I see all that's been wrecked. No problem. Yeah, I'm that's it. Willing to lick the inside of the it's pack. It's not gonna. It's not gonna. It's not gonna inflame you, but your arteries might be sore for it. Um. I'll take one pain over the other. It's all again mitigation. Got to die. Which way are you going to mitigate? Yeah, that, well, that it's you know these are these are sacrifices. Unfortunately, mm. you do have to think about those things. You know, uh, but that you know, no food has. Is without negative side effect. That no. is, that is. Uh, it's about truth. reaching your ethical and emotional choice. It's a balance. It's mm. a balance as well. You know, so when you I realised that, you know, half my answer was, I eat what I like because in days where being blind is really frustrating, it distracts me. Mm. 
And that that's a really deep answer in me that I'd never thought about before this morning. So I think in, in some, some kind of contrarian way where we're used to kind of seeing the Facebook argument, Hunter X or Macho Person X or, you know, whatever uh, <laughs> Meat Eater X, you know, argues with Militant Vegan on Facebook. Um, this is room for, for, I think, the both of you. I, 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 don't, I don't feel qualified as someone who doesn't do this for ethical reasons, but I, um, I think this is room for the both of you to kind of make your case to have a conversation with David that is two reasonable people. As yourselves not being Militant Vegans, I wouldn't describe you that way. I find it so hard to counter that you know with a sense missing you well, no, don't try and convince me just make your case to the world like <laughs> yeah don't try and convince me it's <laughs> well i want it to be known that i don't necessarily want to convince every person mm. in my circle of life mm. and everyone that i meet to go vegan rather i would encourage them to go you know do meat free wednesday mm. every wednesday yep. just eat vegetarian even if you can go completely plant-based for a day a week, fantastic. That is something that can help the cause of all of the things that yeah. we can that we're trying Again, to enhance approach. your mitigation strategy for making a better, more ethical world, and see how far your mitigation gets you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if, like, say, everyone in the world, idealistic, but had one day where they ate plant-based. That's going to have a bigger effect than if a few people went vegan. There's also the idea that Jade and I are two individuals with, yeah, a bit of an agenda, a bit of a (laughs) a cause that we would really like to see take off. But we also live in, like David just said, this disgusting capitalism-based driven society that I think recently when Grilled did there, they only sold the Beyond Meat Burger for a day. Yeah, I think that there's so much power in something like that, that a corporation like them has this ability to, without even labelling it as, as a vegan thing, because yeah. as soon as you see the vegan label on something, macho word. men that want to go to grilled for their lunch after they've just <laughs> built a house really, really just want a big steak in their burger. It doesn't have to be scary like that. I think there's so much Mm. power in that. I think that's a much stronger movement than two individuals. But collectively we have, I don't underestimate our power by any means, but we need to get bigger companies on our side as well. Yeah, for sure. That's, you know, those are the people that you should be trying to convince. I think uh, that anecdote at the start is excellent uh, of of Jade being, uh, leading by example, um, Mm. you know, kind of. But you did state your case. This is this is why I want to give you the room to do that. It's yeah. You, you didn't kind of set out to convince your parents. I I would imagine you just lived your example. You did, yeah. but yeah, I think it's also important that you were educated enough in in in, in doing that. And you probably explained to them, "Oh, I saw this today, X Y Z." Yeah. Because I'm not sure I would ever be convinced if I didn't know why I would want to turn vegan. So I can't just say, so Jade's vegan, I, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to follow because I have no reason to do that. So I want you to, I, I kind of do want you to make a case. That's, that's kind of what I'm trying to prod you into doing. <laughs> it, it's hard because I feel like I try to avoid that so much in everyday life because I don't want to be pushy or feel like, make people feel judged. But I'm, I'm hoping you don't need to do it in a way that is, makes other people yeah. feel bad for it. Okay, change the, the spin. How would you help someone 
explain why they'd swap to veganism if they needed to explain it to their family and friends. You've had the experience. How would you help them explain it? Because often part of taking a hard decision that is hardest is then explaining your difficult decision to other people. Yes. So how would you help someone explain the decision to become a vegan to their nearest and dearest? I think I would probably lay out information about the industries. I would start from information-based starting point, I guess, where I would tell them maybe let your family or friends know this is what's happening in the industries and you're not comfortable with it Mm. and explain that for whatever reason, because, again, people turn vegan for different reasons, health, environmental, ethical, whatever that person is coming at it from, explain why that's important to them. And, like, for me, for ethical side, it'd be, well, I've done research. It's evident to me that these animals can feel pain, pleasure, Mm. and I don't feel comfortable taking that life away from them or causing suffering by my decisions to eat certain foods when I have the options in front of me to choose differently doesn't sit well on my conscience. That's a perfect way to describe it. That's a really good answer. Yeah. Sophie, if you feel any differently. I definitely feel the same on that side of the argument. And then on building on top of that, I think that we all have such a ginormous responsibility to be doing all we can to mitigate the effects of the climate emergency that we're undergoing and through cutting out meat and then cutting uh, or, or showing the market that there is less demand for that meat. So we need to shift, we need to make a change in the way the market is or what it's supplying to us and through changing over to a, a plant-based diet, we are making such an effective change in the the climate emergency and I think that's a super compelling argument to anyone that is afraid of what's going on in the future and maybe is um, politically disenfranchised and individual responsibility is a real thing. We can't leave it up to our politicians. We can't be leaving it up to just someone that seems bigger than us a grassroots movement has way more power than we give it, has so much more credit than than what we think it does. More power, more... Collective action, Mm. even Mm. if it doesn't have to be very organised, eventually the purchasing power of purchasing differently. Mm. So I used to make the argument to students, okay, $25 T-shirt made in a sweatshop, $30 T-shirt, you know, made somewhere where they're allowed to have a union, which one are you going to buy? $5 is a big difference. On a T-shirt, but now in the case of food, you know... It's a little harder to see the overt difference. It is. But there's still the difference of, well, how much more in your basket was, you know, whole vegetable foods? Or if you're going to eat meat at all, you know, less per week and more ethically sourced for that less per week. So there's so many little mitigation things here that as long as you don't end up at the militant end of kill it and grill it or the militant end of veganism, we're probably all capable of contributing to a more effective mitigation strategy. Now, this is where I somewhat agree with Peter Singer and where somewhat I disagree. Uh, I agree that we've hit the human jackpot in that you know, I was born in a Western society in this age where I'm really lucky to live the life that I lead. Now, he would say that we probably have a responsibility 
um, or we have the power, actually. He would say that we're lucky to have the power to make a big difference by making these choices about unions or making these choices about animals or making these choices about charities, etc. I am a cynical optimist in, you know, in that I think um, I'm not convinced by altruism yet. Um, I'm still on board with it being in, in some way self-serving. But I'm optimistic because I don't necessarily think these are mitigation strategies. I just see this as an opportunity to, to feel really good about my choices. So it's, I'm not thinking about this um, as, as a problem that it is my responsibility to solve. I will make a food choice or I'll make a choice about an ethical T-shirt or I will make a choice, you know, whatever it is, about the environment that I can actually just feel really good about. And I think that's kind of where I'm, I'm a little bit different to Peter Singer and I think he would say it's probably your responsibility and maybe he would even agree that it's a mitigation strategy. But I kind of like the self-serving part about it. It's a bit you're of my ego. It's then. your responsibility is taking you, your choice away. It's saying you're responsible and otherwise you'll feel guilt. Well, no, well, it's he, a choice. He doesn't. He would frame it as a choice. I mean, this is an interesting once conversation given, that we can once have. Once he'd given us the guilt complex first. Mm, kind of because... I think he would argue that we don't have to donate to charity. Uh, it's it's interesting because you know, effective effective altruism is, is kind of a little bit about seeing the good that you're doing, which I think veganism is really hard. As, and unless you're in a farm example like the both of you are, which then you know kind of doesn't necessarily agree with veganism exactly. You, it is it is difficult to see the difference you're making with the food that you're putting on your plate. And I think that's also why it is so unconvincing from the emotional standpoint that when you're putting meat in front of you on your table, you're not seeing that animal being killed or whatever mm. has happened to the animal for it to get to your plate. In the same way, I'm not seeing, I'm not actually seeing the benefit of not eating meat every day. I'm not seeing the difference in water or all of those kinds of things. Mm. I'm I'm too far removed from the actual process of these things to to, to see the benefit. In in the same way that I think so Peter the emotional Singer, reward ends up bigger because you can't see the practical implication. I'd say that. Um, yeah, okay. I and mean, maybe that's, that's why I don't even think it's a mitigation thing, is because I can't actually see the problem. But uh, not in an everyday you can reminder. See it intellectually, mm. but practically, you don't yeah. walk past it. It's, or walk it's an it. abstraction for it to be a problem. Yeah. Now. I would say that Peter Singer would say a similar thing in the sense that his version of effective altruism is perhaps about seeing the good that you do. Well, that's my that's my exposure to him. I don't, you know. There's a lot of power in the tangible evidence for sure, but from, I guess, the individual impact that we have, I can take a lot of comfort in knowing that everything that we do here and all four of us in this room, the things that we do as a collective have so much benefit for the greater good mm. even if i can't see that and i think the fact that we finish off on that utilitarian greater good ideal world does it matter how we got there we got there though mm. you know we yeah. can agree on more things than we disagree on. yeah and that's a, that's yeah. a good start and again this is the reason to not become a militant version of anything <laughs> because you start disagreeing on too many important things with too many people where together you could get a game whereas individually it just causes hostility so meat eaters be tolerant of vegans vegans be tolerant of meat eaters don't try and necessarily persuade each other while you're eating 
Don't wreck each other's meals. Persuade each other at times where you're not eating. Red paint on the fur coat, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a whole other issue, <laughs> the whole fur coat thing. Yeah. Well, no, I just mean, yeah. you know, don't protest your meat bars. Mm. I want to end the podcast by thanking the both of you for coming on. It's been stimulating conversation now. This is the longest recording that we've ever had on Blind Insights, so I think that says, says a lot. And I hope our listeners find this interesting as well. I, I think there's probably a lot of scope to, to revisit because there are a lot of things that we touched on quite superficially. Yeah, so thank you very much, Sophie. Thank you, Tim. Thank, th- thank you, Jay. Thank you, Bruce. And of course, thank you, David. And now it's time for a vegan burger. <laughs> Woohoo! Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Peace out.